Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devi Kagirish. We're the editors of Film Comment. First off, a belated Happy New Year to everyone. Every January, we like to take stock of holiday multiplex offerings with an episode we call New Year New Releases. For the 2024 edition, we invited Film Comment podcast veteran Alyssa Wilkinson, a staff critic at the New York Times, and first-time guest Robert Daniels, an editor at RogerEbert.com. We started off this year's haul with a pair of sports movies about bad dads and the perils of masculinity. The first was The Iron Claw, directed by Sean Durkin, about the Vaughn Eric family of pro wrestlers. And the second was Ferrari, by Michael Mann, about, well, Enzo Ferrari and his racing ambitions. Then we moved on to discuss the new book-to-movie-to-stage-to-movie adaptation, The Color Purple, and wrap things up with The Book of Clarence, a befuddling Jesus comedy starring Lakeith Stanfield. We hope you enjoy the conversation and have a happy and healthy new year. The holidays are always a time for sort of a a flush of new releases, uh, you know, both like blockbusters and family-friendly films, but also films trying to get under the wire uh, for awards. And we like to kind of start off the year by sifting through some of those. And so today, to discuss the new year, new release crop of uh, 2024 films, we have with us one veteran guest of the Film Common podcast, Alyssa. Hello. It's good to be here. Your bio has changed since the last time you were on this it podcast. has. <laughs> I am now um, Alyssa Wilkinson of the New York Times, which is a new and exciting job as of the middle of November. Well, I thought you were um, going to say a new a... exciting publishing venture. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, you know, we're really hoping it startup. works out, but we'll see. Yeah, plucky yeah, startup. Yeah. yeah. Plucky startup. We've got we've got big dreams. No, it's been a good it's been a good transition and um, quite a quite a time to be joining um, in the in the movie year with the Oscars coming at us like a freight train. So very exciting stuff. Good to be here. Lovely. And we have a brand new guest, a debutante on the Film Comment podcast, Robert. So lovely to start this season with you. Well, let me start with y'all too. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm an associate editor at RodReaper.com, and I'm also a contributor at the New York Times. Wonderful. So we, Clint and I, were thinking that we would start today's episode by talking about a movie that everyone seems to be obsessed with right now, uh, which is The Iron Claw. And I say that, Clint, you're looking at me skeptically because... Oh, I, just wasn't, I kind of forgot briefly which movie we were going to start with, and I was trying to figure <laughs> out which one everybody was obsessed with. Well, I saw it this weekend, and it took me so many tries to find tickets that were not oh, wow. in the front row. I mean, I didn't try like mm. every theater in New York, but I 
you know, I planned to see it a few times and every time I checked, it was like all sold out except like the front row seats, uh, which I was really surprised by. I didn't realize people, you know, were flocking to the movie. Alyssa, maybe you want to start us off, uh, say a little bit what this movie is about and your your <laughs> sort of some initial <laughs> thoughts. Yeah, so um, I am no wrestling uh or pro wrestling expert at all. Everything I know about pro wrestling, I know from like documentarians because they're all completely obsessed with pro wrestling. Um, but this is a movie about, is not a documentary. It is a, a dramatization, the story of the Von Erich family um, who were, um, are a series of uh, very successful pro wrestlers on some level. It's, I will say like one thing, I appreciate appreciate about the movie, but um, also makes it hard for me to talk about it is that there's not like a lot of talk about the mechanics of like what the like how you win and what the like divisions are or anything like that in pro wrestling. But in any case, that's not really the point. The point of the movie is um, this family, um, the father and the sons, and all of whom uh, had like very tragic circumstances in their lives. Uh, there's like deaths and you know, um, uh, accidents and all kinds of things. Um, and sort of, it's sort of an examination of like, I would say toxic fatherhood of a certain kind, but a little more nuanced than I think we usually see. It's also kind of just a showcase for some really hot guys. <laughs> so, um, Zach no complaints Efron, here. <laughs> no, no. I mean, if you've caught the the marketing, a lot of it has kind of depended on the abs of um, Zac Efron and Jeremy Allen White, who's, you know, everywhere right now, and um, Harris Dickinson. Um, but yeah, I mean, I saw it in a press screening ages ago. And when I left, I thought, well, that was really kind of difficult. Um, but I think it'll do really well with you know, ordinary moviegoers, which isn't something I can always say about that kind of a movie. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I enjoyed watching it and I was interested in it the whole time. Um, but certainly if you don't know anything about pro wrestling, you won't know much more leaving it. Um, and I know pro wrestling fans have a lot of opinions. Oh, really? Um, What, what are the, what are the pro wrestling fans takes? Robert, are you by any chance a pro wrestling fan? I used to be, you know, I was like, I think every kind of like teenage boy has a phase where yeah. they watch WWE and Raw and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I definitely went through that phase. And I knew about the Von Erickson family because my brother is a massive wrestling fan and he like collects all those like those like WWE documentaries about like mm-hmm. those different wrestlers and the different promoters and stuff like that. And so I had like some grounding in it going into the film and that I think helped a bit in kind of centering myself but yeah Alyssa's right like if you if you have no idea what the different divisions are and the different promoters and stuff like that maybe like your baseline is like I know who Ric Flair is yeah you're That's probably like not going to learn much from. more yeah I will <laughs> well, say as and- someone who knows nothing when Ric Flair came out I was like this is a drag queen right I mean this is a drag queen <laughs> It is a very drag queen. I mean, Ric Flair is actually one of the the I, uh, elements of the film that apparently the wrestling, the pro wrestling fan community has a lot of emotions about like the because por- they his, don't the like the portrayal of him. Yeah, they don't like the performance at all. It's it's kind of a bit. Thin- well, I guess it's not. It's a little more than a bit, but um, 
But, you know, he's certainly not the center of the film, but that's something. And then the other thing that I keep hearing about is there was another another brother who also met some kind of a tragedy who was just kind of cut out of the movie. Um, and some people feel that that was not fair or a disservice mm. or whatever to the story. But I think if you've seen it, you know, there's so much tragedy that by the right. time the like fourth awful thing happens, it's like, I can't, I cannot possibly. Yeah. The narrative structure here is almost just like, everything is good. Bad thing happens to one brother. Oh, we'll deal with this. Bad thing happens to the other. Like there, by the third br- yeah. bad thing happening, yeah. I was like, I kind of was, I chuckled. You know, it's I, I enjoyed yeah. this movie and found it kind of moving, but I was also like, oh, like th- there's something yeah. biblical <laughs> yes. at play. <laughs> and I think maybe just for listeners who may not know the context, I don't know if this counts as a spoiler. I will say that I did not know the details of the Von Eric family and the so-called Von Eric curse going in. Mm, same. So it was, maybe I shouldn't spoil it because I, I ended up being sort of edge of my seat. Although I will say about halfway through, I was like, okay, I I get where this is going, even though it's yeah. a true story. Because the next brother up would be like, I got this. I'm going to be yeah. the greatest wrestler of all time. Oh, oh, my ankle hurts. And then you'd be like, oh, oh yep. this is not going to be good. <laughs> but I think maybe what I can say vaguely is that they clearly, I mean, partly it seems like they did have uh, a family history of tra- unexpected tragedies. I mean, just a lot of death, but also mental illness. Yeah. Uh, you know, mental illness and just, um, you know, fem- clearly paternal pressure. I mean, as parenting that was maybe some might call abusive. I think the movie doesn't quite clarify uh, the father-son relationship to the extent that, I don't know if, you know, when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is really interesting because it doesn't necessarily make the father out to be a clear-cut villain either. I thought that in the general pattern of a lot of sports movies, you have that abusive father coach figure who pushes them, the athletes, too hard. And sometimes they owe their success to that, but it leaves them with scars. And there's shades mm-hmm. of that, but I found it hard to properly understand what sort of pressure he was placing on them because wrestling, pro wrestling is about performance mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. so than it is about, I mean, it's Athletics. scripted. Yeah. So it's, yeah. To me, to my understanding, it's not as much about, you know, um, you know, getting the best time like an athlete might or, you know, Mm -hmm. learning, you know, to fight and enduring a certain kind of physical uh, extremity. And so that was one part that I found really confusing uh, in the movie, even though I think it in some ways works because it keeps the movie from becoming too cliche and over-determining the father-son relationship. But it also left a lot of questions in my head about you know, clearly the father feels some sense of unfulfilled masculine honor that he wants these sons uh, to recover. But the sport is so campy and not about honor at all in the first place. In fact, it is the opposite of honor. It's all made up. Fritz von Mm -hmm. Erich, the movie doesn't show this. He got into the game as a heel, a Nazi. Like his character was like a Nazi villain, you know? So... I never quite understood what it was that he wanted his sons to achieve. Fame, money, strength. And they talk about being like the best, you know, I'm going to be 
son, you're going to be, I want you to be the best ever, like this kind of, and so then you're, you, yeah, you ask like, what does that mean in this context? Like the best ever? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is really about how, uh, parents sort of like pass that feeling down to their children and like Zac Efron's character's, um, whole arc is coming to realize that he doesn't want to be that guy with his children. Um, and so it's sort of like a, I don't know if we're going to use therapy parlance, like breaking of generational trauma movie. Um, but it was funny for me to put it next to like King Richard from a couple years ago and think about these sort of sports dad movies um, and the different kinds of dads who pop up in them um, and how that differs from like what the sports mom movie or the dance mom movie would be like, um, all of which I think is just but, you know, this movie also is just interrogating, I think, the idea of a curse like, do yeah. we make our own curses? Are they self-perpetuating? Are they real? And do they have to be mystical to be real? And that that all, I think, is pretty effective and relatable, even if you're not, you know, a wrestling guy. Yeah. I mean, I think another thing that this movie is doing is it's an excuse to have these kind of 70s era set pieces yes. with like classic rock playing is like four mm -hmm. good old boys like jump in a truck and cruise down the, a dust dirt road to a part a house party type of thing and it is properly sweaty for that era sure, too yeah. which <laughs> it's such a good. texas movie uh too yes. you know they, they live on this ranch uh but robert did you do you like it did you dislike it in the middle yeah i mean i think i'm I'm in the middle. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, like we've talked about like it being like repetitive, you know, after a while, you, you know, okay, look at the point, you know, I'm not sure Sean Durkin really adds a interesting shape to the events. Um, but I do love the performances. And I do think that like, you know, Zac Efron is like, I mean, I, I've always thought he was a very good actor. Like he just doesn't usually get great material. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like a paper boy defender to the to my to my death, you know. I think he's amazing in that film opposite um Matthew McConaughey. But um it was great seeing him kind of play such an internalized character because I think that's what he does really well is play these like very broken, misshapen people who are really just like looking to have to 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 be seen in some way. Um and I think I was pretty on the negative side for much of the film, you know, because I was like, this is, this is just repetitive. But that final scene that um, mm -hmm. that, that he hits is just, it, it, it broke me. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, without, without spoiling the, the film, but, you know, the, that line of, like, I, I used to be a brother, too, is just, I think it's, like, someone who, like, I have, like, a few siblings. I have, like, a... Uh, a couple of half brothers, a few half sisters, <laughs> a full blooded brother. Like I always like think about my relationship in with my siblings, and um, and I I always feel like I would know if something happened to them, and I feel like the 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 tenderness between these brothers is I think felt in every second of of this film, and I think that's really what makes it watchable and makes it something that just has been gnawing at me since I've seen it. Even though I don't think much of the actual you know, storytelling that's on display, um, I think the performances have very much stuck with me from this film. Yeah, I completely agree. For me, first of all, I think a real casting coup. I think Harris Dickinson, 
uh, Zac Efron, Jeremy Allen White, and Stanley Simons, uh, who I hadn't seen before in a movie. Uh, they just work really well together as brothers. And I think they each of them is charismatic on their own, but also work very well as an ensemble. And for me, the main thing that really stuck with this movie is this sense of male tenderness you know a real and that too in an environment that can seem uh counterintuitive to that you know this kind of machismo environment and they are so sweet from the beginning Kevin and Carrie the older brothers and you know they're all kind of protective of each other and they even though a lot of the movie is about repression and men not you know showing emotion they're actually all throughout the movie very tender and affectionate with each other. And I thought that mm-hmm. was what really broke through to me. Um, so again, like I said, I don't know much about wrestling. Uh, I did a lot of Wikipedia deep diving, you know, after watching this movie. Mm-hmm. And you guys know the concept of kayfabe, which is yes. the word for like lore and the kind of fake narratives that kind of structures the world of pro wrestling. And mm-hmm. this is maybe me wondering why this movie was not a different kind of movie, which I realize is not necessarily fair. But, you know, after reading about the Von Eric brothers more, it feels really difficult to make sense of this movie without more about the role of kayfabe in wrestling. In terms of like mapping the kayfabe on the, of the curse onto their own lives in some way. That is one part of it, but like a sport that is so based on performance, delusions, uh, fictional narratives. I mean, I read that, I believe Fritz von Erich or like the von Erichs won most disgusting promotional tactic award or something (laughs) four times in a row. And they were all for like exploiting one of their brother's deaths in one of these like in the ring narratives. And so for me, this. All of this, the construction of masculinity, the idea of a curse, um, all of that would have made more sense. And like, I think to me, it all only comes together when you reckon with what is at the heart of the sport, which is fakery, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I found that like... Theatricality, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I just kind of found that, and you know, the fact that they had, you know, kayfabe brothers, right? They were, there are Von Eriks who are not blood brothers, they're kayfabe brothers. And it, this just seems so central to this world. And so many of the themes in the film, I feel, actually gain substance once you know that context. Mm. Um, that I, I just wish that that had been, that had been centered more. You almost wonder if, Maybe there's some parts of some aspects of that were left on the cutting room floor because there are some scenes where they yeah. where they party with their uh, you know enemies in the ring, but and but they're shown before they before they like go out for drinks afterwards. They're shown and portrayed as being like real enemies, and it's really important that this Von Eric brother defeats this person in the ring. And then afterwards, it's like then they acknowledge that oh, it was all kind of fake. But the audience is sort of led to believe that this is like the stakes are real and that this is the path to victory. So there's like a dissonance there, I think, that is not really made sense of. With this kind of like storyline, even though it's 
you know, we've talked about it being repetitive. I think it's also so sprawling and there's so many different ways you could go with this story, particularly with brothers and like their family lives. And then also like the in-ring stuff and the divisional stuff that I really feel like it would have lended itself better to being a miniseries as opposed to a film. I just, I'm not sure that the film format allowed um, Durkin and Co. to really kind of add an interesting shape to this um, within the time constraints. Um, I really feel like it, it might have been more interesting in, in a longer format. Yeah, I think that makes us, it would also have broken up the, uh, the tragedy a bit and been able to kind of create an arc around that instead of it just being kind of a stepping like staircase of tragedy down to the bottom. But I do think it was pretty effective and the responses have been pretty great from audiences, I think generally, which is just interesting. It's yeah, it's a tragedy going in. I and um, I have to say, I thought it was really well edited. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. this again, there is that repetition and directorially, I think towards the end, there's some sentimentality almost as if to blunt the accumulation of tragedies. But there are some really fantastic cuts and shots in this film. Um, you know, where information is revealed. With a kind of showiness that I think is borrowing from the theatricality of pro wrestling. You know, I like this mm-hmm. is a film that really is giving a lot of thought to how information is revealed, to the construction of surprises and suspense. Um, and I, I, yeah, there, you know, there's a great shot where a coin is tossed to decide which of, which of two brothers is going to enter the ring. And, you know, you see the coin go up and then, the camera pans up from like the feet of the brother who ends up winning the coin toss and you sort of have to wait until the camera comes up to his face. It's this kind of showy in an obvious way, but just so elegantly, sleekly done that it really works. Like that MO felt to me that it was, yeah, just almost like a tribute to this this craft. <laughs> I don't know what to call mm-hmm. it. Sport, craft, spectacle. Um mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, unless anyone has more thoughts, uh, if we we actually might want to move on to another movie about men and sports and winning and how the thirst to win can end with a lot of tragedy. Anyone, anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Sounds like Wonka to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, uh, uh, ring any bells for you? <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's been so many films since <laughs> this past year. You know, just like, like centered around like not just sport, of course, but about like around like men who are, are really kind of like grappling with their you know their masculinity and with tragedy and like this particular movie. For there's no much, yeah, this movie doesn't have much grappling with it. I think they're pretty pretty secure. <laughs> He's pretty secure in his masculinity. Let's let's say who we're what we're talking about. And we about. are talking about Ferrari, which I have to pronounce <laughs> as it's pronounced in the film by Adam Driver. Yes. There is a rule on this podcast. We have to say Ferrari like oh boy. just as they do in the movie. <laughs> Noted native Italian Adam Driver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he might as well be at this point. <laughs> so. uh, Robert, why don't you start us off on this one? Because I believe you just rewatched it. Yeah, I just rewatched it, and funny enough, it was a film that 
I did not like on the first watch. Um, you know, because I was I started watching, of course, in this this film, um, as opposed to like a a broad biopic is really centered upon a a very specific moment in Enzo Ferrari's life, um, where him and Team Ferrari are are on the precipice of bankruptcy if they don't win this major race. And then Enzo also is crap. I mean, he's like battling his wife who's played by Penelope Cruz. And then he also has a mistress played by Shalane Woodley. And as one does. Yes. Mm-hmm. As, as one unfortunately does. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, this whole film, uh, which is uh, set in 1957, um, is going through the um, financial hardship that the company is going through, but also I think the personal hardship that Enzo is going through as a grieving father who, uh, whose son that he had with Penelope Cruz is, uh, has, been, has passed some time ago. Um, and, is, and now he has a new son with Shelley Woodley. Um, and trying to figure out you know, the value of the Ferrari name um, grappling with the economics of the business and grappling with, you know, the the dangers of racing and how uh, life can end at any moment. And if you're, you know, the head of that business, then how do you remain objective and yet human at once? Um, and so, yeah, this wasn't a film that I particularly liked on the first watch, um, particularly because of the accents, particularly by the native Italian, Adam Driver. Um <laughs> And then also, you know, it wasn't a film that I thought was um, particularly like had had an interesting thing to say. I mean, we've we've had we've seen these films before. Like First Man was kind of like this, where we we saw like a grieving father who's like caught between machine and human. Um, but with this, it it felt a little bit too controlled. It didn't feel messy enough for my taste. On second watch, I think it greatly improved um, as I kind of saw how Man was shooting. Uh, the racing scenes and how he was shooting driver in particular. And, and on the second watch, I was able to get past uh, a lot of the accent problems and I really noticed the physicality that the performances on display. Um, and so it's, it's a film I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit up on now after seeing it again, but I still don't particularly love. Yeah. I think I, I initially also felt uh, pretty that the accents were very off-putting and some of the characterizations of Italian culture seemed a little broad to me. Um, just to just to kind of without getting into specifics, uh, but there. But I think yeah, thinking about it after after I saw it more, I did it. I did kind of come to appreciate it. I think that uh, the racing scenes in particular, it just it, the movie seems much more interested in the in that. Uh, you know, not surprising for a Michael Mann film, but like those action scenes, the things in motion that's when the movie really comes alive and he doesn't seem quite as interested in the, in these themes of grief or there, there's kind of sketched out in the background, but not, but not, not central to the film to me. What is central to the film is the way that the, is the way that uh, Enzo Ferrari kind of puts that grief into his business, into racing and puts like, and that becomes this kind of uh, everything is on the line in those moments. Yeah. I mean, I only saw it once, um, and I also, I don't know if this is the kind of movie that you should need to watch twice to appreciate, you know? I mean, Robert, you're a critic. I think this this is the kind of movie that should sort of 
work uh, on first watch. And for me, it just did not work when I saw it. I mean, I just found it so hard to get over the fake accents because this is also like, you know, this is not a fictional story. This is about like a real, very, very established, legendary Italian family, a kind of family that has defined some aspect of Italianness. So then to watch the story be performed by these actors, first of all, speaking English, I mean, it's very hard for me to get over that in today's day and age where viewership is so global, right? I mean, I've we watch... Uh, movies in other languages with subtitles it's just very hard for me to buy that in 1957 all the ferraris are talking in english in these wildly varying italian accents except for shailene woodley who doesn't have an italian accent at all so much so that i <laughs> thought she was just an american i thought she was an american character and then i was, then at one point you know she said she grew up in nearby and i was like okay well she tries what she just has her mouth very Close because she thinks the closer her mouth is, the more Italian she sounds. <laughs> Did not. Catch and, and Enzo Ferrari's mother, I genuinely thought that she was British. And at one point, I was like, "Oh wow!" So Enzo Ferrari was, you know, half British. His dad married a British woman, and then I just looked it up, and I was like, "Oh, all just Italian, like a hundred percent Italian." And so, not to on that but i really did you know well, struggle. you know there aren't really any italian actors it's just not a there's no tradition of acting <laughs> in italy so they, they have zero actors i mean you know a very similar thing happened in the last movie adam driver played an italian in which was house of gucci but because that movie was so I think on purpose can't be. Yeah, it was like it it worked because, you know, how can you not love Gaga doing that accent? But yeah, this is not meant to be a schlocky movie, which is why all of those Woodley scenes came off so strangely, because you're just like, is is this on purpose? This is a somber movie. It takes itself very seriously all the way through. And I mean, so that was just, I just couldn't get get past that. But also, racing is not like, to me, it doesn't feel like a very cinematic sport, uh, this kind of Formula One racing, which is not to say, I mean, there's movies that are able to capture it in a really fantastic way. A lot of people have spoken about the racing scenes. I didn't feel quite moved by them. I think for me, unlike athletics or a physical sport, this kind of idea that you can't you don't really see human ability as much when you're watching like a video of someone doing formula racing so i think the pleasure and the spectacle comes from speed and danger i i didn't feel like the movie really captured those things but even when it did this is my main quibble with the movie which is that i don't think that it really conveyed the tragedy that one has to accept in the sport. And I understand that Enzo Ferrari had to keep sort of moving on, moving on, right? One of his drivers dies. Okay, how are we going to win the next one? But I thought that the movie should have maybe emphasized the dissonance between his, what it seemed like, repression in the service of excellence versus the reality of this constant loss. it should have emphasized the dissonance a little more. I, somehow it felt like a very unfeeling movie to me until the very end. Mm-hmm. I 
it something about it was so cold and sleek and I felt like it never really reckoned with the price of death and loss even at the end there's a I mean the ending is to me it was so it's such a gutting tragedy and even then the focus seemed to very quickly shift to Enzo his relationship with his wife the fate of his company that was my main quibble <laughs> This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is supported by Netflix, presenting Maestro. Nominated for eight Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor, Bradley Cooper, and Best Actress, Carrie Mulligan. Alongside an ensemble cast featuring Matt Bomer, Maya Hawk, and Sarah Silverman, Bradley Cooper completely transforms into legendary conductor-composer Leonard Bernstein. The rap raves that director Bradley Cooper conducts a masterful symphony. Time Magazine calls the movie grand-scale filmmaking that's also bracingly intimate. And The Observer calls it the best picture of the year. An epic love story spanning five decades, Maestro features expert craftsmanship from Leonard Bernstein prosthetic makeup designer Kazu Hiro, spectacular cinematography from Matthew Libatique, and outstanding costume design by Mark Bridges. Maestro, for your consideration in all categories. Yeah, I mean, that said... This definitely, I, the only thing I knew going into it, because I, I knew some people had seen it before I saw it at the New York Film Festival, was that there was like a very disturbing crash in it. And I, I feel like I have to warn people about this sometimes because, um, and there's in fact two crashes, I believe. And one, the first one that happens is sort of acrobatic and startling, but acrobatic. And I was like, wow, yeah, it wasn't really disturbing, but like, whatever. When the disturbing one comes, it really is. I, I honestly mm-hmm. had not been, I was not prepared and I'm usually not phased by that. Um, which I admire the commitment to actually staging it as disturbingly as it would have happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen the movie since that screening and I also was left cold uh which made me sad because i really wanted to be more into it i think um i not to like keep bringing up house of gucci but i actually did think of house of gucci at the end as well and the reason is um there's this sense that i should care about who is running these companies um of like luxury italian brands and like that's clearly very significant to some people and i just like really don't care i just assume a giant corporate conglomerate owns everything um and maybe i shouldn't and maybe that's like a deficiency on my part but it doesn't feel like a properly constructed punchline for a movie um to tell me like oh you know and these people retain ownership i'm like who who cares (laughs) i don't care Mm. about that i'm interested in the story and the people but not like their companies um this is just not a thing that i'm ever going to be interested in yeah uh so that's kind of at the end of the day not effective to me as like a epilogue or whatever and that's the plot engine of the movie in a way i mean it's ultimately about the fate of the company who'll have it is it going to be his illegitimate son all of that it's yeah i agree Mm -hmm. it's just hard to reconcile that politicking with the other stuff that happens in the movie you know um hard to be interested in that when the movies also just like all these tragedies are sort of piling up mm. and there's a point there to be made actually about yeah like how some people are more 
caught up in these uh, dramas of succession, uh, you know, while these other things are happening, these other very real corporeal material losses. But I don't know even, you know, I think going back to what Robert said, I don't know if the movie has anything particularly interesting to say about any of this. It just shows the events kind of. It doesn't add up to any sort of commentary to me. Yeah, I mean, I think one of my big issues with the film is you talked about like that kind of line of succession and we we see that in The Iron Claw, right? And that is a lot of like where we get the emotion from. I'm not so sure we get that in here. We don't get enough scenes, I think, between um, Enzo and his illegitimate son. Um, I could have done more with Penelope Cruz, who feels like the only one who actually has a pretty good Italian accent. <laughs> if only because she's like fluent in Italian and you can feel that in, in, in the way that she like forms her mouth and everything. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I feel like we never feel the line of succession in the weight that it has because I'm not sure the film ever finds a character that we can kind of, we can kind of identify that theme with. Um, and I, I, it, it, kind of, it makes like, particularly the, the middle of the film so grueling because you're like, okay, well, I get it. He's, he's, you know, he's cold. He wish he has, he wish he could show his heart. But he's just in a sport that doesn't allow him to. And it's like, all right, well, I, I need more. <laughs> give give me more with this character. Give me give me some, a little bit of a human element here. And it, this is a film that, even, even if you don't think Enzo should show that, it had a chance with the illegitimate son. And I feel like we, we could have, if we could have gotten more scenes between those two, then that might have come better, come out better. And, and maybe this wouldn't feel as cold as it is. I think the Penelope Cruz character is probably the heart of that kind of the only character that really comes off as like a warm or human, but she's also bitter and angry. And so, Ugh, what, I mean, to me, yeah. this movie is really like about this, the mach- not really succession, but like the machinery of, of business, the machinery of, of maintaining and tweaking and in the same way that his mechanics are constantly tweaking and the engines and making the car move faster, he's tweaking his business and it must be approached as an, and he has to approach his life as an engineer essentially. And that's, I think, you know, made most explicit in the scene when he is with his illegitimate son describing some kind of like intake manifold i don't you know i don't know how engines work i'm just pulling (laughs) phrases that my mechanic has said to me the intake manifold and (laughs) like uh and like he's he describes it as like a work of art but but really he's just we're talking about like an an engine that makes something go Mm. so like he sublimates everything else to making something go and making Mm -hmm. this business go and making the engine of that work, making the and making the cars go, and so everything, including that's like when that when this horrible accident happens, he reacts with little emotion. You know, he's he just does what needs to get done, moves on to the next mm-hmm. thing, and so to like, I don't I don't think this is a the film is not moving. You know, you don't really feel much emotion for these characters. It, you might leave the film feeling like. Penelope Cruz's character sort of bitter embittered you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) that like Mm -hmm. the world kind of takes people and grinds them up in the machinery of these of these day-to-day requirements I feel like that's a very poetic reading I don't think (laughs) 
Well, this I is like a Michael a, Mann. This old... is a theme of Michael Mann's movies. Like this is not. Of course, like, yeah. But know. I think that I don't know if the movie does a great job of, um, to me I, at least. I, I don't think this is this his reading. best movie, but I think that this is like very much what the movie is going for. I guess, and I and yeah. like it features some great racing scenes. You know, like the, like <laughs> some cool crane shots of cars zooming down roads. Over the shoulder shots are, are fantastic in this too. Uh, I don't know. I'm just so unmoved by <laughs> driving, but that might be a me thing. I'm just <laughs> I also cannot drive, uh, so you know that probably is part of it. <laughs> You're just jealous. Pure jealousy. <laughs> Anything I'm not good at, not interested. I don't care about. <laughs> I'm kidding. But you like the wrestling movie. Well, you know, the wrestling movie is very touching. No, it, I agree. Ultimately, you're, you know, I'm a I agree. sucker I'm just, for human emotion. I'm just emotion. playing devil's advocate for Ferrari, which after seeing it, I was like, I, I couldn't stop doing a fake Italian accent for like three <laughs> oh, days. Oh, I, I remember. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, maybe let's move on from Michael Mann to another auteur, Steven Spielberg. Wait, trying what? to sort of oh, engineer okay. We're kind of reverse engineering this. Yeah, yeah, reverse engineering exactly. Um, yeah, doing a, doing a little Ferrari over here. Flint and I have not seen the color purple, the the new version of the color purple. But I know Alyssa and Robert, you have Robert. You just published uh, a great feature in the Times about it. Uh, Alyssa, do you want to start us off by saying a little about the movie and your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so this is one of um, actually several, uh, let's see if we can do this book to movie to musical to movie adaptations um, that are are among us. The next being Mean Girls. Um, this is not Mean Girls, although I guess there's Mean Girls in it. But, um, you know, it's it's a it's a film adaptation of the musical version of The Color Purple, mm. which was in turn based on both the novel and the movie. And I know Robert just published his big feature, so he has a lot more to say about that than I do. Um, but uh, I saw it in a packed room, and I guess I'll just tell this story. So I saw it at the Warner Brothers um, screening room, which is in Hudson Yards. And I was, I got there kind of like 20 minutes ahead of time thinking I'd have plenty of space and it was like packed. And I was sitting, so I sat in the back next to this woman who told me that she was a color purple snob, which was the way she put it. She was like, I've just, I love the Spielberg one from the eighties. And I don't think this could possibly live up to it because the only person I can think of who could direct a good musical these days is Steven Spielberg. And he didn't direct this one. And I was like, well, great points are being made. But then, uh, so I was kind of, you know, gauging my reaction partly by her reaction because I was curious how a self-proclaimed color purple snob would, would react to it um, because I just have less kind of like history with the material. And she was completely with it for the first two hours or so, kind of up to the start of the third act. The first um, two hours. Then, Yes. I mean, all musicals are long, so you just have to assume. But um, and then the last act is like half an hour. long. It's very fast and it moves along very quickly. And at some point she whispered, it's going too fast. And that was what I was feeling, too. So I would say that from my perspective, there was a lot that I enjoyed about this movie and found very moving. And I also think it's just inherently insane that the color purple which is a deeply 
disturbing story on a number of levels has been adapted so many times by Hollywood in like these big Hollywood productions and also on Broadway. They just don't, the form and the content feel mismatched. And I don't think that either movie adaptation has really kind of lived up to the darkness uh, of uh, like the, the inciting darkness of the, cause you just can't portray that fully on screen. I don't think, or people will flee. Um, unfortunately, but, um, but there was that, that much of it I found good, except that I was annoyed and realized she was right by the, um, a thing that is my usual complaint when I'm watching Hollywood musicals, uh, on screen, not directed by Steven Spielberg at this point, which is that they cut too much when people are dancing. Just let the people dance, move the camera around, quick, quick cutting. I want to see people dance. I don't want to. I don't like, want to see... see the camera dance. I want to. No, see... I'm yeah, <laughs> exactly. I want. Like, I want to. Yeah. I feel the same. I, I haven't seen this, but I do want to emphasize this. And you know, I watch a lot of Bollywood musicals as well, and it's like, mm-hmm. let me see the blocking and the choreography yes. of the dancing and the yes. movement of the ensemble. The camera yeah. is doing all of the choreography that yep. the people should do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I realize like there's budgetary reasons you would do that. And it's like harder to get everything in one day, whatever. It just was frustrating. But um, great performances throughout this one. Um, I know Danielle Brooks is getting a lot of attention uh, because she's incredible. But I would say pretty much everybody in this movie rules. Um, but I did feel like the pacing was way off by the end. And it, it's also hard for me, and I've been thinking about this because Mean Girls, to know, like, the why um, of the readaptation. Um, sometimes you do it because the older film can be reinterpreted. Speaking of Spielberg, I think the West Side Story remake really did this well. Um, but it's just, it can be tricky to know and to not feel like you're just watching, like, somebody make a movie because they know it's going to make a lot of money. Um, so that's that's everything that was in my head watching it. But I know Robert has lots of historical and uh, contextual things that he wrote about. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Mean Girls, <laughs> Alyssa, because I was, <laughs> in terms of like, uh, like mutation of adaptation the entire time I, going into Color Purple, um, there's actually like uh, a Black musical, like, instance of this happening, it would, would Porgy and Mess, where Porgy and Mess started out as a 1925 novel, just called mm. Porgy. Later on, it became a play, just called Porgy. Then it became, uh, you know, a musical called Porgy and Mess on stage. And then it finally made it to screen as Porgy and Mess. And like, um, um, in my, you know, my piece I was um, that I wrote for the Times, I was referencing Arthur Knight's um, and his book uh, Disintegrating the Musical. And he actually talks about Porgy and Mess in there. He talks about how like there was this continual like face to the essence of the novel that they it never really quite no one ever really quite got it right it was just like the essence of the novel with whatever medium that it was kind of projected in just didn't work sometimes i feel that way with with and i yeah, sometimes i really feel that way with the color purple where the color purple as Alyssa, i think so well stated is there's so much that happens in the book, whether it's traumatic, whether it is of like the religious context, whether it's you know the um, the the sexual uh, uh, component of it um, that don't necessarily lend itself well to the screen and trying to get all of that in there to get the 
full kind of vision of book that Alice Walker wrote. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think, I mean, I didn't have as much of an issue with the, the blocking, if only because, you know, and if, if only because it, it did feel natural. It did feel like it was very much like tethered to the dancers as a way to, as, as opposed to cutting away from the dancers. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the performances are, are fantastic in this, particularly Daniel Brooks. And I think like, like I wrote for the times, I, you know, like, I think the way that this speaks in that kind of lineage of the black musical, um, format, um, where, whether it's the, um, the Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington kind of short jazz films, or, uh, it's later stormy weather, or we get into dream girls and there's a lot of Idlewild in this as well. <laughs> um, um, that I think it, it, it works well in that tapestry. And I think there's, there's a firm kind of like lineage that it's working through that I found very engaging, even if I thought that some, what was left out from the book um, in terms of the adaptation was lacking. Um, do you, do you certainly know... I know like one of the, the main components that many um, people have complained about, particularly Black women have complained about, um, or critiqued, I should say, um, is the lack of the the lesbian love story between Suge and Celie in this film. Um, I know Brooke Obi wrote a great piece for Anscape about it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a it's an issue that you happened in the Spielberg film and it reemerges here. And um, if anything, if, if there's a change between the Spielberg film and this, I would say that the Spielberg film had a little bit more distance from the actors. as though like kind of Spielberg knew that this wasn't really his lane, but he's still going to make great compositions <laughs> no matter what. Yes. Um, yep. Whereas like this one felt a lot more intimate in terms of his relationship with the actors and with the story. Do you know the history of the of the Broadway show? Like, why was this particular material chosen? I mean, does it lend itself to the kind of <laughs> musical treatment? Because, like, to me, I was surprised. Yeah. To have see this material be turned into a musical. The novel came out. There was, you know, it won um, the Pulitzer, and then that was big deal. And then the movie, and then the musical, kind of had this longer gap, as far as I know. And but the movie itself is also or the register is not that of a musical to me. There, there. I mean, there are. I would say musical components, at least in the Spielberg version. I mean, mm. like you know, particularly the juke joint scenes, right. um, mm-hmm. like whenever Suge is in it. So I can see like why someone would look at the material and say like, oh, like we have this whole, these whole sections with the juke joint where we had these performance, like these performances. What if we just kind of expanded it out just a bit more and mm-hmm. kind of use song to, you know, provide it, you know, and an internalized look into these characters, right? So, I mean, I could, I could definitely see it, especially in a, and when you have like um because the book is epistolary, right? Like yeah, putting it in song format feels like the next best way to kind of bring that out in, in okay. a cinematic way. It definitely feels like material that would be best suited to an opera to me, but I can imagine why mm. you would do a musical instead of an opera. Um but yeah, I mean that's that that's sort of where and it, it is, you know, there's um songs ported from the Spielberg to this one, which is, which is interesting, but yeah, I, I've never, it never seems like an obvious fit for 
for the form of a musical. Um, but I think the music works quite well. And, you know, obviously everyone has very big desires and things they want and things they feel stuck about and things to say. And the musical format works well for that, especially if you're trying to express feelings without just giving monologues. And the music itself? Good? Yeah. <laughs> Bad? Yeah, I mean... No, I mean, I I quite I love the music quite a bit. You know, it's, I mean, it's it's very, I think it's very very well written, which I think is one of one of my big issues with modern musicals is that I never find the the songs particularly catchy or particularly well crafted. You know, I'm just like, oh, okay, well this this just feels like pure exposition in song form. You right, know, right. as opposed to being something that's you know like orally engaging. My big issue with all Lin Manuel Miranda, frankly. But we don't need to go there right now. <laughs> We're not going there. Uh, but we are almost at the end of our hour, but I thought we could close out by talking about another literary adaptation that we all Man, saw recently. These transitions, you've become, you've emerged into 2024. <laughs> with, Segway with, queens. Um, Segways, as a master yes. of transitions. Yeah. A book-to-screen <laughs> production, shall we say. I'm talking about yes. the Book of Clarence. Uh, which is a new film by a British director, James Samuel. And it's a sort of, I don't know, a biblical <laughs> comedy. It is a biblical comedy. Exploitation. Starring comedy. Lakeith Stanfield. Exploitation, sure. Exploitation thing. Alfred, what do you, what are the, it just has a, the cast is like pretty. The cast is unbelievable. Um, wild. Stacked, as the kids say. It it this cost is just Benedict I mean, let's Cumberbatch list off some of, in this movie, right? <laughs> that's the first Benedict thing. <laughs> James James McAvoy is also in it in a bit part, but yeah, Lakeith like, Stanfield, Tiana Taylor, Alfre Woodard, David Oyelowo. Uh, there's others. Um, Omar Sy, who I love from the French yes. series Lupin, Michael Ward. I mean, so many good actors, and what. I thought was spectacularly silly, but not even silly enough. You know, it wasn't, not it didn't even silly commit to the, like funny, right? It didn't commit to the silliness because it's also kind of serious and very religious uh, by the end. Very. I found it very confusing, but Alyssa, you're, you have written so <laughs> much about Christianity in movies. Sorry to kind of put you on the spot, but no, it's fine. I feel like there's a lot. I I was very aware watching it that there were things I was missing that it was referenced. It feels like a very personal, personal, personal project, I would say. Um, And I like that. And I should say upfront, like what I like about this movie is it's just really going for something uh, with all of its heart and, and, and every like just pedal to the metal i don't know i'm mixing metaphors but it feels very like you know this is going for something and as a person who in past lives um has had to watch and write about a lot of not just biblical movies but jesus movies specifically there's like two or three every single year um some of them with pretty big names attached to them because they make a lot of money um this does not feel like one that's made to capture the faith market i mean there's like Mm, (laughs) there's there's some oh no no there's profanities there's weed dealers like this is not gonna fly with the with the typical faith market which like absolutely will not take any of that stuff um 
And I did some poking around. Do you mean like the white American faith market? or I mean, you... no. The faith-based movie genre is actually surprisingly uh, racially diverse. Um, but uh, but it does tend to have some hallmarks, which is like no objectionable content. Certainly no swear words. Um, it's quite violent in a way that feels different than like the passion for instance or something like that but anyhow having written about a lot of these that's one thing i appreciated about it is it's a little bit like dirty um and there's a lot of drug use there's a lot of drug use there's like a bit where like they go to a weed den place and there are people literally floating in the air to signify that they're but then other times people are smoking weed and not floating i would would, and not floating there was no consistency in the in the weed floating that was my big issue all all that said like i don't think it works um i at all but i'm i kind of respect the gumption of it um and respect the like weirdness of it and also i'll just say it put me in mind of two separate entertainment things that are related one is this show the chosen which is i think about to start its fourth season only in theaters apparently produced by the same people who produced the sound of freedom which was a big hit last year it but it's um a tv show about jesus and his disciples and the people around him and it sort of tries to paint them as regular people they also cast people who are like actually middle eastern in those roles which is pretty rare um for that and of course the the sort of quote unquote jewish characters in this one are all black actors from kind of all over the world um so that's kind of interesting. And then on the flip side, it also, of course, made me think of Life of Brian, because here we have a character named Clarence, who's an atheist walking around and dealing weed. Proclaiming himself the Messiah. Right? Proclaiming yeah, and, himself the Messiah. We should we should and, give that little plot, plot detail that he is yeah. a skeptic and decides to pretend to be a Messiah to make money to get out of the skirmish he's in. But then things take Things take other turns, and God has his plan for Clarence. Yes, and um, Clarence is also the twin brother of Thomas, the disciple, who is, in fact, named to be a twin in the Bible. So that was kind of a fun little twist. But um, but one thing The Life of Brian does really well, I realized when I watched it fairly recently, is that, um, there, you know, proclaiming yourself to be the Messiah was like, sort of proclaiming yourself to be like a wellness influencer today. Like you just did it and walked around and people followed you. Um, and, uh, and it kind of creates that aura and there's that in this film too, which I think is like a fun thing that's often missing from contemporary movies with Jesus as a main character. Um, and I thought David Yellowo as John the Baptist was hilarious. Um, when he, he tries to drown Clarence. So anyhow, it's not a, it's not like a, good movie but it's an interesting one to exist yeah I, it seems to me i just thought, felt like certain actors felt like nobody knew what kind of movie they were in so you'd have these scenes where yes. like you could tell like lakeith stanfield would have like some throwaway lines that were like funny or interactions with between characters would briefly be like very funny but totally tonally different than whatever was coming before or after and so there was just this like constantly shifting tone that was really kind of confusing and mm-hmm. i probably should i probably should just buy a ticket for a showing for like you know like on the south side of chicago just so i could see <laughs> <Yes>. like <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. like the church aunties coming out and seeing this yeah. movie mm-hmm. and seeing the, the illicit sex and the weed and everything yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I I agree. I don't think you know tonally it it works. I think this is you know, Jameis Samuel did a before this at the heart of they fall a western a similarly mm-hmm. all star kind of western. Um, oh yeah, that that, also that's where I know his name from. You're right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That, that also felt like had a very clear vision. I'm just what well, I just wasn't sure what that vision totally was. Um, and it's mm-hmm. and this has I think the same issue, but it's like I think worse with this film where it it there's just so much going on, and it does feel distinctly personal. But I'm yeah I'm I'm not I'm not, I'm not sure totally what is going on inside <laughs> yeah. of his head. <laughs> it's con- yeah. going it's contradictory. Of- like, and the question is yeah. like, who is going mm-hmm. to watch this? It really Weed does smoking feel like skeptics. Yeah. Or true believing aunties, you know, like, and yeah. and if both are going to leave it somewhat perplexed, and not that you, not that there's not an overlap between these two groups of people, but like, it just makes you. I just couldn't really understand. And it's a real like messy mashup of metaphors and allegories. I mean, there were points at which it felt really lazy. You know, there's all these police brutality metaphors with the Romans. <laughs> um, I think. A, quite unsubtle, frankly. There's a scene of Lakeith Stanfield dragging the cross up the mountain and his mom, you know, is screaming, they always take our babies. I mean, <laughs> something about it felt so disrespectful almost to me, not not to Jesus um, or to Christianity, but to like real world politics. I don't know. It just all too simplistic and such a mishmash of metaphors that just some kind of extended sketch. It felt like an extended sketch that just kept going, again, I should say, beyond two hours. All of these movies we have discussed today are longer than two hours. Um, yeah, I, I I have to say, I'm just... Robert, I hope you do go to the Southside screenings and report back. <laughs> I just... I'm, I'm curious for the, this movie to come out and see what people make of it and who are the people who like it and who don't. Because mm-hmm. I... I cannot predict that at all based on having watched it i mean like going into it i mean like az is also a producer on this film as well um and like going into it i was like okay he's gonna do you know like him was doing a religious a black religious epic i wonder like how is he going to make it uniquely black you know and then it's like you know listen to the film you're like oh the romans are white supremacy okay yep. <laughs> But that's about it. He never goes past yeah. that. The Romans are, are white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, oh, okay, well, is there is there something else with this? Is there like, <laughs> yeah. like it's it's yeah. just like a commentary on the crime bill? Like what what's going on here? And he just never kind of like lands that second foot for you to be like, okay, this is this is how this kind of story not only would work on a, you know, on a contemporary landscape, but on a black contemporary landscape where there's so many black films that are kind of like fighting for lack of a better term, you know, to be deemed important. And, you know, this is important, quote unquote, trying to be important in like the most shallow way possible. I just wish it had been more. I was I was hoping for more Life of Brian, just silliness. But that's because, yeah. you know, but, yeah, that's but, what or, I want from like or, or like fully in the other or fully like this is a movie about Jesus and Clarence, yeah. his friend or his yeah. frenemy. Well, I think maybe on that note, 
we should close out New Year new releases. Uh, we talked about four new releases for the new year. Um, 2024. We didn't rave about any of them, which feels like... Um, Iron Claw was a, was a fourth thumbs up. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know. I wish, I wish we could have started the year with just an outright rave. But you know what? Hopefully it's only going to get better. <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much, Alyssa, Robert, for joining us. And we, you know, hope to have you back for many more podcasts this year. Thanks. It's always fun to, to chat with you guys. I'm glad we could do it. Yeah, I'm glad we could do it, too. It's, uh, if, if I do do the South Side Black Auntie screening, I will let you, I will report back. Yes, please. Thanks, everybody. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 